to the Coaches Rising podcast. I hope this finds you well. In today's conversation, I'm going to be speaking with Ram Ramanathan, who is the founder of Coacharia in India. They actually have trained thousands of coaches now. I think they've been around for about 10 or 12 years. So we're going to talk today. Ram's going to share his views on the state of the coaching industry and his criticisms of it. And he'll share about his desire for uh, redefining coaching and what that looks like and the place for working systemically, the need for, for working systemically within that and the role and how systemic and spirituality actually overlap. So I think that's really beautiful. So he'll talk about um, how he works systemically with the organizations and the impact that that has over just working one-on-one with coaching clients. The more I speak to people who are working systemically, the more I'm reflecting on my own coaching practice, which is, you know, I'm kind of late to the party with the systemic stuff. So I hope you enjoy this. As I said, Ram is the founder of Coacharia. He um, worked in for 25 years in executive positions, including CEO and helped grow a billion dollar conglomerate. And uh, that all kind of um, took him up and up and up. And then um, there was, he suffered in the, the crashes, the dot-com crashes in around the world. And then um, he became a coach and oh, actually in between becoming a coach and being a, um, an executive, he had a spiritual career authoring, authoring several books on Eastern philosophy and traveling um, with an international spiritual teacher. And he'll talk a little bit about that. And then he moved into coaching and he's, you know, one of, a thought leader in the field of coaching. We'll talk about his ideas around being mindless. Uh, instead of mindful in the conversation today. So just before we dive in, if you're not on our mailing list, you want to stay in the loop, head to coachesrising.com and put your name in the sign-up box and then you'll stay up to date about things that we bring out. And other than that, let's dive in. Here is the podcast with Ram Ramanathan. So Ram, good to be with you. How's things today? Yeah, pleasure to be with you, Joel. Great, absolutely great. Yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you about uh, you, the work you do and Coach Aria as well, um, which is the coaching organization that you've created. I think it's based in India and you've trained hundreds of coaches now. And so we've got lots of different places we can go into today in our conversation but maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, coach aria and and its inception and what you guys stand for okay um, i joined a coaching program which was okay and at the end of it uh, in about a year's time i became a pcc coach and uh, that time i was probably the second or the third in india or something of that sort uh, Coaching was barely known, and anybody who called himself a coach was really a kind of a mentor who had worked for Hindustan Lever, Unilever, or IBM, or something of that sort, more a mentor. And uh, not that I knew any better, to be honest. It started with that, and then eventually established Kocharya with uh, my son. And by word of mouth, purely by word of mouth, uh, we spread, uh, we grew bigger and bigger. We eventually became 
in about between 2011 when we started to about 2014-15. I think we had, I had personally trained about 500 to 600 people every year, about 100-120 with about three or four programs a year. And uh, many of them were credential holders, uh, PCC credential holders. I trained initially with a partnership with uh, another company and later I went on my own through uh, stages to the ACTP program, which we are currently. And um, we had trained almost about, yeah, 500 to 600 people as credential holders in India. And one of my vision was, which uh, was never expressed very explicitly, was that I would like to put India on the scene in the coaching map. Um, at that time, India was nothing, absolutely nothing. Singapore, a uh, fraction of India's population, actually I'm a Singaporean citizen, um, uh, had more number of PCCs and MCC coaches and others than India had uh, till about that time. So, uh, and almost about, at one time, we, we had trained about 80% of all <laughs> the credential coaches in India. And uh, by about 2016, 17, we decided to go global, though the company we had incorporated in the US as well. The main operations I was running in India, my uh, son, he's in the US, he has been in the US for a long time. So he set up the website, he created the initial uh, infrastructure for Kuchari Asit, where I created the content and it was all by word of mouth, personally reaching out to people. There was no social media approach, no nothing. And uh, I think around 2017 uh, is when we brought in Magda, my son. She's a friend of our uh, son. And um, she truly changed things. She really took it from something which was like a truly a dad and pop, uh, or not mom and pop, but uh, like a dad and son store into something what we have today. And we have expanded really geometrically or if not exponentially. So we today have a community of probably about, I don't know, probably touching 100,000 people. Um, we have trained probably a few thousand people. Uh, the numbers aren't really what uh, we sort of proud about. Uh, we have grown in revenues as well, far better than we ever thought we would. But far more, I think we have many ways, I think we are trying to redefine coaching. Um, one of the things that right from the beginning, uh, Magda and I agreed on, so did our son, in that we, 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 we can't be elitist because coaching was seen to be a kind of an elitist profession where coaches charge a lot of money and, and the great coaches, they all post that they coach CEOs and so on and so forth. Um, I don't know whether there's something great about coaching a CEO. First of all, CEOs are uncoachable. They don't want, uh, they want others to change. They don't want to change. So it's a thankless job anyway. But to create coaches out of executives or coach senior executives and so on and so forth, um, is to me a far simpler proposition than helping people become what they are in a normal sense or making, like for instance, I had an argument with someone. Um, he said, oh, you are taking on people who are like secretaries and housewives and they are training to be coaches. I said, yeah, that's what I'm proud of. 
what is the big point in taking an executive and training them to be a coach? Why don't you try this and see what is the joy that you get out of? So I'll stop here. I mean, this is what we have grown into. We want to democratize coaching. We want to make it affordable to everybody. We don't want it to be elitist. And so from there, which is the next uh, thing which we would like to do, we can talk about it more in detail. We talked about it earlier as well. Into moving into a systemic approach to coaching, which is where I think coaching should be. And to me, that is part of a larger spiritual path uh, mm. that I envision for myself and Coach Harvey. Uh, so there's three buckets there uh, that I, that I want to go into a bit more and probably they're all connected this redefining coaching systemic coaching and spirituality um, could you say more about your vision of redefining coaches you know um, what, what what would be like the end game of that vision for you I hear like this democratization of coaching what what do you think the impact of that could be in the world and and the end game you know I know there might not be an end game of that, but yeah, the, you're right. The, the, there's no real end game. It's it's always a work in progress. Now, redefining we Magda coined this term. Um, our purpose is to help everybody discover and define their better self, uh, both as coaches and with clients. And that, that's truly what I think uh, we are about. And we also believe that in everyone, there's a great leader, there's a great healer, and there's a great coach. I know I don't see a difference between these three terms. A great coach would automatically be a great leader and a great healer. Mm. And by healer, I mean uh, an emotional, mental, holistic healer who adds value to people and helps them to be their better self in that sense. Today, pretty much 80% of the people that I meet as coaches, I, I don't say it's wrong. It's a profession, so everybody wants to make money. Uh, they want to be better than the other person. Everybody wants to start up their own business. That's all fine. But is there a true purpose beyond that? And I'll, I'll touch upon it a little bit because very recently I read something with, or I listened to something which really created a tremendous uh, epiphany in me and uh, so that that's one part of it to take it away from that elitist kind of a thing we charge so much to be, make make them to train to be coaches and then they have to make the money uh, it's almost like you know what it's like what politicians makes politicians corrupt because they have to make spend so much of money to get elected for which whatever they will do especially in countries like india and other countries and at the end of it, or even if it's a US, and the end of it, to get that money back multiple times, the greed, so they'd start doing things which are completely unethical and immoral. Mm. I'm not saying that coaching has got there, but point is, as long as we are driven by those things of power and greed, I think we can't be true to ourselves. So how yeah. do we get back into something, which is where I think the spirituality comes in, Coaching is not about me, it's about others. And it's truly the John Dunn's uh, uh, saying about no man is an island or Ubuntu, I am because we are, or there's a great uh, Upanishad saying which says, the one who sees others in himself or herself or, and is able to 
see himself or herself in others. That's a truly evolved person. And it's, that's what spirituality is about. It's not about a, a religion, which I truly believe is evil, which is about control through greed and fear. And this is something which liberates us, unlike religion, which fragments us and breaks us up into fighting robots. So that is where I see the, the thing about uh, how do we want to redefine it. So we are trying to sort of, as much as we can, we try to pro pro provide whatever our products and services are at as low a cost or even free. And wherever, of course, people are looking to make it into a profession, they want to be credentialers, of course, we have to charge them. And it's more like, yeah, we charge those who can afford to, Others, we provide scholarships and a lot of material as much as we can. We try to make it freely available in one form or another through MOOC and various other kinds of possibilities. So that, that is where we want coaching to go and still be able to create people who are able to help other people through the intervention of coaching. Um, yeah. yeah, then we can get into this. If, if, if you have any, any, any other clarification in this, I'll be glad to provide. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a lot you said there, and I, I think it's worth teasing out a bit more because um, it, it's an, I, I see if I can articulate what it brings up in me um, because I, I hear you speaking almost like as, the, as coaching as a way of being, which is proliferating into the world and that um, that is liberating people, you know, like wh whether we even use the word coach, it's like the, that way of being, um, it has a positive impact and then actually through the democratization of coaching we can spread that positive impact around the world and perhaps it can be one of the vehicles for us navigating through these times of of crises and uncertainty and i think that's really what we believe in coaches rising too you know and then um you know it fascinates me what you say about coaches because like um you know, it makes me think about myself. I, on the one hand, I, like most coaches I know, and myself included, are really driven by a sense of wanting to contribute. And it's, you know, that's what brought me into the profession in a sense. And um, I think that's a whole conversation because I think that's truly the place where we can each play a role in these times when we land inside that sense of being a contribution. Um, and and then there's like my my journey around money, you know, and and developing myself as a, um, as a kind of entrepreneur, and and so yeah, I'm kind of you know I'll get to the point in a moment, but it's like um, I found that very valuable. That's been very transformational for me to be in relationship with myself as an entrepreneur and money, and to it, it has it has brought many positive things to me. You know, I've had to work with my own shadow around my own value and worth and what true contribution is and actually having my clients pay higher fees and then seeing them getting better results from the work we do. And then and then within and, and that, that lies within a bigger question around this around the capitalist system, you know, um, which has brought so many things, amazing things into the world. I think that often doesn't get acknowledged um, but it's just 
for me, it seems blatantly obvious that the way this system's set up right now is not geared towards um, a kind of collaborative thriving. You know, it, it's, you know, you hear people now talking about rivalrous dynamics and game A and game B kind of dynamics and game A being this capitalist rivalrous system that we're all immersed within that, that I think is part of the issue that we're um, encountering uh, as we, as we um, seem to encounter all these problems and crises, you know. So um, those are just some thoughts that come up, you know, as I, as I listen to you, because I'm inspired by what you're saying and it, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it brings up questions for me. I don't know what comes up as I share all that. Yeah, okay. Um, we talked earlier, Joe. I mean, I think kosherizing and kosharia, we have many things in common in terms of what drives us. But I'm not sure we represent the majority. Uh, I wish that were true, but I'm not sure. I say this for a few reasons. If you look at LinkedIn or any social media or wherever coaches promote themselves, it's all about, you know, I coach CEOs, I coach whatever, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the message out there is that unless you are coaching leader, and many of them, to be very honest, I have trained lots of people who themselves have never been in any senior leadership position. And their ability to train or coach senior leaders, which path they haven't walked, I'm not quite sure how valuable that is going to be. I mean, having been a corporate leader, built billion dollar enterprises, I find it difficult to work with CEOs and I don't do that very often because they don't want to change. They just want other people to change. So invariably, I work with people who they then say, oh, these are the guys I want you to coach and change their behavior pattern, et cetera, et cetera. Fine, that's okay. This is where we are now getting into a systemic approach and so on, we can cover that in a bit. So how much of what we are saying is really true? How much of it is about like any other profession, which is fair enough, it is about self-aggrandizement and greed and uh, be it a lawyer, be it whatever it is. I mean, a doctor's job is supposed to be so much a service. It isn't, and, or anything else. And so coaching has become another profession. That is fine. For those who wish to go into coaching for that purpose, I have no quarrel with them, and that's what they are doing. So they can be glorified trainers or facilitators or whatever it is. Hey, this is what I charge. $100 now, $1,000 now, whatever it may be. And the more you charge, the more famous you become in, in the, the thing that the best coaches would always be those who charge five-figure fees to their uh, clients. I mean, that, that's what today coaching is about, to be honest with you. So personally, maybe it's because of my age. I'm 74 now or because of the vision that I have had, the spiritual journey that I have had, or the fortune of having people around me, like Magda and my son and others who are now saying, yeah, this is what we like, this is what we would like to do. So more and more people are joining us with that vision, belief, that we want to contribute something. Now, looking at another way, 
you know, most of the coaching accreditation regulatory organizations, I don't want to name anyone in particular, they are regulatory and control bodies, but they do not want coaching as a profession to be regulated. They are fighting tooth and nail against it. Why? If counseling is regulated in the United States, if any form of psychological work is regulated in the United States, why can't coaching be? Why shouldn't coaching be? So I, I don't see the logic in many of these things. Mm -hmm. And coaching is not all about a set of skills that you can put metrics on and you say that you measure, if you score this much out of that much, then you become a good coach, then you become a better coach and the best coach and so on and so forth. There's a lot more to coaching than that, which I would like to go back to the Carl Rogerian philosophy of client centricity. Uh, in terms of that empathy, unconditional positive regard and congruence and so on. So I don't know, I mean, I don't want to be seen like a whiner, but the point is that there is a gap between what coaches would like to, it's fine if coaches are just like business people. This is what we are about. Let's not be hypocrites. And we want to make money. And this is the way that we make money. We provide a service and the service is what it is. Then let's not paint ourselves as some kind of saints or storehouses of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And you come to me and I shall enlighten you. I shall create that awareness in you that is going to happen. If you yourself haven't gotten rid of your own baggage, how are you going to awaken other people? Uh, yeah, it's a it's a great point, and the, the stuff you said about regulating coaching, I want to come back to too, because I I wonder, um, you know, like on the one hand, um, people might say, "Oh, that sounds very idealistic," you know, like um, are you saying that then we get to this place where nobody cares about money and? Um, all we care about is being in service, you know, and, uh, um, and even if we become enlightened or awakened ourselves, we free ourselves in some, you know, drastic way. We still live in a world where we need sustenance and money. And I enjoy having money, you know, like maybe that's something I'll transcend if I become truly free, but yeah. Um, you know, people might find that a kind of very idealistic notion, you know, like, um, now, on the other hand, I don't know, for me, it's like, I do feel like I, I'm, I'm primarily, I, you know, let me be honest, actually, and let me be honest, I, in my good moments, I'm really drawn to serve, you know, uh, being, being of service in the world is the primary driver, and, and, and I'm attached to making money, too, and, and there's some good things about that, I've got a young family, and I've, you know, um, so I want to contribute for them, you know, and, and there's ways being attached to money are, are create suffering for me. And I'll, and I'll tell you this, like living a life of service has probably been the most, um, how could I say it? Like painful journey, you know, transformational journey that I'm still on, you know, I, I don't feel like I've, 
I've fully gotten that one, but it's, um, you know, saying that we are of, of service sound, it can sound amazing, but actually if you go down that rabbit hole, it can be, you know, quite dark at moments and, and painful. So, um, yeah, I guess I'm thinking this through with you, you know, and I'm like, ah, oh, I, I, I don't feel that like you're whining. I appreciate, I appreciate what you're bringing in. I want, I want people to let's put it this way uh, I like the pleasures of life okay I would rather stay in a good resort which might charge me $500 a night than stay in a hovel for $50 a night uh, no question about it and I like to travel at least business class because first class I can't afford but not coach class so let's be very honest all I am saying is, let's be honest about what we're doing. Let's not pretend, right? So, which is why I hated the space that I was in, in that spiritual background. And I find the same with the academic background. There's so much of politicking, manipulation, chicanery around that and in the NGOs and so on. But in the corporate space, okay, that's what it is anyway. It's a bit of snakes, <laughs> and so fine, you, you, you accept that. So not either, let's define that this is what we are going to be, and we accept that. Or say, okay, I, I, I need the money, I'll do it, but let's not pretend that we are here to awaken people. As uh, we, so I, this is where, for me, the problem lies. I mean, I like to see things somewhat binarily, though I know everything is a series of grace. Uh, let, let me tell you, the, I, I mean, it, it just came to me. That, you know, if you, not very long ago, a couple of weeks ago, I think, I, I was listening to this TED talk by a guy called Dewitt Jones, I think. Um, quite old now. He was a photographer at uh, National Geographic. And he said that in National Geographic, the only charter, the vision was, celebrate everything around you, whatever you see. And that's a vision with which you take a photograph, not to portray uh, the, the tragedy of war and so on and so forth, maybe, but still the message that has to go out is that we have hope, we have optimism, celebrate. And he, it's a beautiful talk, listen to it. Uh, I think Dewitt Jones, uh, and I can send you the link. And, and then he talked about this little kid he met somewhere where he was doing a photo shoot in British Columbia in horrible weather. And this little kid had a funky little colorful toy camera. And then he wanted to come with him and take photographs as well. And he was smiling all the time when this guy was really, you know, uh, uh, cursing. And uh, he said, oh, you don't seem to be enjoying yourself. He asked you and he said, no, the weather is so bad. Oh you know what, does your camera have juice? And he had this toy camera, which had a straw in it and it's filled up with juice. So he sipped it. So, you know, I was, <laughs> he then showed that camera. Uh, if I go back to that moment, every time I'm in a difficult situation and I ask myself, does my camera have juice? Does my material body have energy? Can I celebrate it? And then I related it with this famous poem by Marianne Williamson. What is our deepest fear? 
The deepest fear is not the darkness. The deepest fear is the light that we may see. And we, are, we feel inadequate because being powerful, being with all the potentiality, somehow or other brings its own pressures on us, which we may not want to accept. I, I don't know how else to put it. It's something very powerful. It comes to, that is, that is where for me, the spiritual connection takes place, where can we look at ourselves as energy beings with potentiality rather than bound by this body mind and restricted into doing this is what we should do. And we should always play the blame game. I'm the victim. I'm here because of this or whatever. Can we break out of that? Can we help other people to realize it? In which case, coaching at the end of the day to me is about a process where someone comes to you in a disempowered state, they feel inadequate, they feel invalid, whatever. So in order for us to be able to help them, to validate themselves, we ourselves, have we gone through that process? Have we cleared our baggage, at least to some extent? Have we worked through our own inadequacies, invalidations to be able to reach that? So today in our training programs, we start with that. We even when we train people, we don't start with just the competencies. We ask them, okay, what is it that you wish to be or what a universe wants you to be? And can you work towards it? In that process, use the coaching mechanism, the set of parameters, et cetera, to, to take you there. I don't know that I am making sense. And which is where, then going back to the other third part of the leg, as it were, is about the systemic part of it. I realized after having coached for about three, four years initially. However much I felt, I wasn't a bad coach, I was okay. And I wasn't a great coach either. Not that I'm a great coach now, but when I worked with them, I found, yes, I was able to transform their behavior. People who were aggressive realized why they were aggressive, why they shouldn't be aggressive. They started behaving differently, validation, invalidation to validation, et cetera, et cetera. But when I tried to track them in terms of what was happening, in majority of the cases, they either the system in which they were working did not quite accept them and they changed selves, or they felt they could not work. So either they resigned or they regressed. Maybe less than 50% really were able to even continue, forget about contributing to the organization. So one of the cases where I was coaching about 10 people together in one particular company at high potential managers, brilliant as they come. And then I used to ask these questions of them, what would you like to be? And I took them to 25 years beyond. They all said, what the heck are you talking about? We can't think three years beyond. And that's what the organization wants us to be, the next bonus, the next increment, next promotion, next whatever. And then the organization had appointed them or given them an assignment to work towards some large goals, which technically was not my responsibility to follow up. But the sponsor asked me, Ram, can you please check what's happening out there? And I found out for about three or four sessions that I had with them that they weren't making, I was meeting them individually. So each one said, no, no, nothing much is happening. And the sponsor said, can you suggest something that is very, very important to us that we can do something differently so that they start getting together. You are coaching them individually, but what, what else can be done? I said, look, I, I have no idea. I have no experience. But 
why don't you allow me to work with them for about two or three days? I'll work with them both in groups and individually. So I spent about three days with them. I worked with them in various sections, individually, groups, individually, and so on. And within three months, suddenly, something shifted. And the sponsor came back to me and said, Ram, I don't know, you worked a miracle. I said, I don't know what I have worked, but what's happened? He said, they have completely exceeded all expectations, what we expected them. We started two years ago, nothing had happened till about three months ago. Now these guys have done twice as much as we expected or in the process of doing twice as much as we expected. All that I really did was to put them in a room and sort of help them to just open up, share. And today, Google has this project, Aristotle, where they call it psychological safety. I didn't know all those words then. It created a space where they could communicate with each other. They could create that bond of dependability. They could create that bond of emotional connect or whatever. So slowly, I started doing this with other groups. And I found I was able to make much more contribution to the organization, also to the individual. Because we would do about maybe two, three sessions as a team and maybe one session as an individual, wherever we found that there was some need to do that. And I, I didn't even know that it was called systemic coaching. Later, as I read about it, somewhere in the EMCC conference, somebody presented a paper on systemic. Oh, I said, oh, this is what it's called. It's called systemic coaching. And then I met Peter Hawkins and others. So I learned a little bit more about it. So this was something which we started about six, seven years ago. And there I found when you extend it further, you are no longer thinking about just helping one individual, but you are trying to support that individual in a larger ecosystem of stakeholders and even a much larger ecosystem of an institution. And that's what to me spirituality means. It's not just about me. It's about what other people want. And it brings absolutely unforeseen kind of benefits because that's the best solution to any kind of a VUCA issue. It's the best kind of scenario planning that you can create. Yet, when I go to organizations and when they ask me to do individual coaching of senior managers and I say, look, why don't you allow me to work if you've got four or five people, I'll work with all of them together. And if there are granularities and whatever I need to address, I can do some work individually. And it'll be much cheaper for you. And you can specify what you want out of it. I can show it to you in terms of ROI that you will get this much out of it. They are not, uh, they are not convinced because many coaches do not want to do this. First of all, they don't know how to do this thing in terms of working with the team or in a systemic sense or whatever. I mean, it's much more difficult. It's much more of an art than uh, a kind of a structured performance like coaching, you have to have peripheral vision, peripheral hearing, and you should be able to suss out the energy from multiple people. It takes a lot out of you. <clears throat> but for some of us, it's tremendously energizing. So I, though that coach told me, no, 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 systemic coaching doesn't work. We need to do coach individual, which is totally untrue. I think it's a barefaced lie. Mm. I can prove chapter and verse to anybody who's willing to try and do it with a guarantee that I will not take any money from you. And from what you gain, give me a percentage of what you 
benefit from that program. They will be paying me 10 times as much as I charge. Yeah. Much cheaper. So this is where these three things come together, in my opinion, spirituality, systemic approach, and the fact that you really would like to do some redefinition of what coaching is. Yeah, no, I appreciate this. Yeah, I like that you're bringing them together now. And um, when we spoke last time, you were, you know, I liked that you were like, hey, I just don't want to, I just, it's just not as effective if I work with individuals anymore as I, if I work with them as a team and I work systemically, it's just way more effective. So I appreciate that. And um, so let, let's um, unpack it a bit more. And we can also, you know, you talked a little bit about working with people as energetic beings. And so we can come back to that as well. Well, when, could you tell me, I want to know more about what, what you mean by systemic coaching and what you do with those teams. Let's go into that. Because when you, you know, when you talked before about working with that team, helping them with psychological safety and opening up, uh, it sounds like team coaching, you know. And so what, what's for you is the difference between team coaching and systemic coaching, uh, if there is, and maybe there's a big overlap um, so yeah, can you tell me a bit more? What do you think yeah, about that? When we talk to clients, we explain to them this way. One is individual coaching. It's pretty straightforward. An individual, let's say you and I, you coach me. I come to you with a certain expectations. I say, hey, Joel, these are the problems that I'm facing. Hopefully this is the, you analyze and you investigate and say, hey, what is the outcome that you want to get and why and so on and so forth. Okay, right. So you, you can do the same thing with a group of people where there is no commonality or identity or identicality, if I want to put that way, of a common goal. So generally, there is a need for better communication. There's a general need for strategic thinking. There's a general need for being ethical or whatever. There is not very much different from an expanded individual coaching or facilitation or training. So you work with a group. But the moment you call a team coaching, at least the way I define it, I look at a bunch of people who are charged with something by a collective system, be it an institution, a corporation, whatever it may be, or even in a family. And they have a common vision that they need to work towards that vision they can refine through co-creation, but it's still very clear. This is what you are expected to do. If let's say if it's in a corporation, it's about maybe launching a new product or a service. It may be about changing the culture into an organization to a specific endpoint or something else. And with specific metrics that can be associated with that end result. And as far as possible, I try to help them to convert that into meaningful dollar values. So they know that by doing this, however, at one level it may be intangible, but there is a tangibility that comes with as a team, if it succeeds, this is what we want to provide. That is where I see the difference between team, because as an individual, if you coach, how much you coach them, they can't do that because you, you are not in control of how the rest of the people whom they are working with is going to react to them, how they're going to influence us. You are not shadowing them all the time and so on and so forth. In a group as well, like for example, you might have heard of large-scale interactive process or appreciative inquiry and so on, where we can work with large number of groups, which I have done a lot of. 
it doesn't necessarily have to have specific uh, end results. Here, there are specific end results in a team, which usually let me stick my uh, this thing to only the corporates. There's very specific ROI parameters. This is what needs to be achieved. So the first step that we do is to get a bunch of people who may be cross-functional, cross-hierarchical. They may not, they may come from different parts of the company, but they're charged with one particular goal that they want to achieve. So to get them into that room space and make them into a team. And the difference between a group and a team is what I would call as emotional bonding. And Google defines it in Project Aristotle as psychologically safe, interdependable. I agree with that. But I, the way that I try to make it work is get emotional bonding, get them to share, ask them a few questions about what are the things that are blocking them, how other people can help them, they can help each other, provoke them into revealing more about themselves. It takes a bit of time. You know, people of a group of 10 people that I'm trying to create a team, it might take me a whole day sometimes. And at the end of it, um, very often, I mean, I have done a lot of this work in the US um, in groups with uh, voluntary organizations and so on, along with my son. And very often when they ask, okay, what do we need to bring to the table? What do we need to prepare? He said, bring large boxes of Kleenex because people are going to cry. So there is a lot of emotional outpouring. That's the most important part, the team coming together, emotionally bonded. And then we bring in the stakeholders views, not just of the team, but many other people. So the stakeholders use. Based on that, they co-create a vision, which is consistent with their individual aspirations, with aspirations of the team and of the team, uh, the, the stakeholders. Based on that, an action plan. And then we work with them for about maybe nine sessions in a month, maybe about a year, where we would review what's going on. It's like an action learning program. So the -step, three steps would be converting the group into a team, bringing in the stakeholders' views to help them to co-create a vision and convert them to an action plan and have an action learning program over about this fairly longish period, six months to 12 months, during which we can actually make things happen. It's like a project. In some ways, it's very analogous to the agile process that many companies use today. Uh, there are broad similarities out there. Of course, there is a lot of the, the coaching aspect is very different, but uh, it, it's like uh, continuous improvement. You take small, small steps and move forward. You continuously bring in the stakeholder points of view and people have to work as equals irrespective of what their designations are. These are the, some of the common issues. So in, in a very, very simple sense, this is how I'm, I'm being extremely simplistic. But right. this is what a uh, systemic approach would look like for me. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I get, yeah, there's a lot you can't share in this kind of conversation, um, but we get a sense of that overview. Um, what, what, there's a lot of questions that I have now. I guess the first one is, um, could you just say a bit more about bringing in the stakeholders? Um, like, what do you do there? Like, you know, um, what kind of practices do you do and why is that important? It is important because, especially when you look at it from, forget about everything else, in this VUCA world, 
the only way that you can really do something better than what we do now is to invite multiple viewpoints, multiple lenses to look at a problem. And these are people who are stakeholders like Peter Hawkins, one of my good friends and a person who I truly respect always says, it's about the future back and the outside in. I think that's what he calls it. Can you say so what you mean by those? Future back is these stakeholders may not exist today. They may be uh, 10 years down the road, they may be stakeholders who are coming in, a new generation of people. This is like, if you're familiar with, uh, you're in Amsterdam, the famous scenario planning of Shell, where they look at 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, what may happen and those kind of things. And you will have totally new bunches of people. Can you do that? So the, the future you bring into the, the current situation, of course, you take some of the past, most of the present and the outside in, that is not just about the team, but many people from outside and some people that you may not be able to get into the room as it were, but then make people talk to them, understand their viewpoints and present it in the group through multiple tools and techniques that we have. Uh, there are tools like multiple voices, constellations, and all kinds of stuff that you can use in systemic coaching. So essentially, a stakeholder is anybody, it's not the Michael Porter's four suppliers, vendors, employees, and owners, or whatever it is. Those days are long past gone. Like the other day, I was working with a group of senior executives, and this guy was saying, uh, during COVID, this was uh, almost about six months ago, uh, we are running a whole series of, they're very big in warehousing. And suddenly we discovered the community where the warehouses are built have become extremely important because in the COVID times, they do not allow our trucks to move in and out because of what could possibly happen. We never even considered them as anything relevant to our business. So, so these kind of things suddenly crop up. There could be a new generation which is coming up. I mean, now, as you know, probably the new, uh, what do they call it, the environmental societal governance systems or whatever, ESG, which has replaced a normal corporate governance and things like that. These are all good things which are happening, expanding the range of people who we impact as a corporation and who in turn impact us. That is what stakeholders are. How many people can you get into that space? And is that for you, this is where I hear like when you say spirituality, redefining coaching and systemic coaching coming together, that actually we're expanding, you know, we're not just doing it as an intellectual exercise as a team, exactly. but each individual in that team exactly. is expanding their sphere of concern uh, as a practice and actually as an embodied experience, you know. Uh, totally, totally. Some of it you do by sending out surveys. Some of it you do by interviews. Very often, if there are 12 people in a team, I tell them, okay, reach out to as many people as you can. doesn't matter who. Who in some ways or other you impact and who impacts you. And come back with the viewpoints and let's talk about it. Let's put all that in a crucible. Let's melt it and see what comes up. Yeah. And um, could you then, is this where, like you said, we, we work people as energetic beings in a sense, is that happening? You see that happening in these, 
in this process you've described? No, no, where... no, no, no. I, I, I didn't mean it. No, this possibly, I don't know enough, but yeah. the energy beings is more in terms of when I work with them in, a, in the setting of a team and when I interact with them. And even virtually today, I'm finding it possible to do, but much better if I'm able to do it in a face-to-face uh, -face space. You... As you listen to them, there are two things that come up. One, many people who are familiar with this, they know that already, that if there are 10 people in a room, there's an 11th entity, the invisible gorilla, which is a team. It has a, its own persona, which is emerging. Okay, despite the fact a couple of people may be naysayers, some may be yes-sayers and whatever. But more than that, you, you can sense by energy, it. Okay, let, let me not make too big a thing about energy. It's about nonverbal cues. It's about the way that people look at each other. It's a way people defer to each other. It's a way that people uh, are uncomfortable with each other. I mean, it's a space where the individual space collides with another's individual space. So what happens then? What is that relationship? I would call that energy. So it's almost their thoughts colliding, even if they are not expressing it in real words or whatever it is. Are you able to sort of get an, if, may not everything, but generally, at least are you able to pick up the extremes oh. some way? What is the collective I mean, that is coming up? That is where the energy comes in. That's really well described. I think that's, that's a, a capacity that individual and team coaches should be cultivating you know, the ability to, I've, I've been in, um, for me, I, I got a lot of that practice through the circling community that I've been part of and in these groups where we would be exploring, it's kind of an interpersonal meditation. You're very much kind of yes. in presence together and sharing, exploring what that's like, what that brings up. And um, totally. it's quite remarkable, yeah. um, the outcomes of that and the experience is quite remarkable because first of all, often people uh, start to connect to themselves in a way that they find deeply meaningful, you know, and, and uh, vital. So people often come out feeling very vitalized and, um, but also that you start to refine your perceptivity. So you can actually start to tune into kind of like the resonance of the people in the room as individuals and as a group, you know, and it sounds a bit strange talking about it, but it, it's like, it's, it's not, it's not weird woo woo. It's like, you can just feel it. It's palpable. And uh, you, you can then begin to articulate that as a, as a facilitator to speak into it and name it in a way that um, allows that process to keep unfolding. And, you know, it might be that the group is then able to process uh, uh, conflict or grief yeah. But on the other side, it can also be that they, they, I've seen people tap into like remarkable experiences of collective presencing and, and intelli uh, creativity, you know, that, that starts to come through and yeah. this collective vision that starts to almost, you know, this, I hate that we're downloading, of, but, yeah. you know. The second yeah. part of it is, a, I, I would call it a consequence. It always happens. The first part, all that, you, I, as a systemic coach, I need to be completely centered, as I use my favorite word, mindless, vulnerable. What do you mean by that word, the mindless? Yeah. 
my lips is I, I, I'm not using my senses. I'm not making judgments about what this person is saying, what that person is saying. I'm just allowing it to flow into me and let whatever may happen, happen. I'm not trying to influence the way that they are doing anything. I'm just allowing them to do it. And then suddenly, once, I mean, if you're a meditator, it's something that you can learn easily. That's, that's not very difficult. I'm sure you do already. So then you just ask a very innocent question. Hey, why is this happening out here? What's going on here? And you suddenly sense that collective consciousness thing that you're talking about, a breakthrough happens. Or even sometimes I need to just look at a person when he says something, I don't say anything. I just look at that person asking almost, hey, why are you saying what you're saying? And that person feels uncomfortable and then starts saying something which he or she didn't intend to say. So something else comes up. And I, I, I don't know, Joel. I mean, all I know is that the process works if you allow it to work. I, I, I mean, that, I think you're describing it very well. And uh, when you say, I don't know, it's like, oh, it sounds like you, you actually have a lot of clarity to me. And I like, um, yeah, you know, I know in my own practice, that's kind of what I'm cultivating. I do, I work with groups less than I used to, but what one-on-one -on -one clients is that mindless place where, you know, I interpret that as I'm not like trying to be a coach, trying to get to a destination um, you know, I, I'm like, I've let all that go. Yeah. And, and, and the, the method and the tools can come to the foreground when needed. But it's like, I'm in a place of deep attunement and, and openness. And, um, you know, like, there's a sense that's that sensitivity I was talking about. Suddenly, it's like, I'm way more in my genius in that place than when I'm tr trying to be a good coach. And it's like, there's an efforting and you know, I can implement a process, but it was a little bit dry or um, effortful. And then when I let go and suddenly there's a kind of natural intelligence and this sounds maybe for people a little bit, you know, or maybe I, I talk about this quite a lot on this podcast. So maybe I should stop saying that, but it's, it can sound woo woo to people until you, but actually it's a very practical, experiential, experienceable thing that it, it you know it's not um anything esoteric necessarily you know it's just innate within each of us if we if we do that work that you spoke about uh, that coaches need to do to integrate our our beliefs and that's why i found working with money in my own life because i i was um always broke you know for for like 10 15 years and um, and then I began to work with money and, and it tr transformed and that wasn't it, the, the, end, the end game for me wasn't to become rich, but it was, a, it was about creativity. It's like, and, and self-worth, you know, and actually self-liberation, you know, that I could free myself. And so, um, yeah, that's a no, few what, things. What, what you're saying is exactly it. Absolutely. I mean, in, in the sense of, I mean, you're not trying to solve anything. You don't need to work hard. Just let it happen and be there. And when we all talk about as coaches, the being state, 
That is really what the being state is, because you are not being active. You are just there as energy source, and you are catalyzing something to happen. And can you do that without wanting to contribute value add <laughs> and then screw up the process? So that, that is something, as you said, it's experiential. You need to actually experience it. It's risky till you have tried it and you feel comfortable because then you have to have the ability, the vulnerability to say, I don't know if somebody asks you. And most that's my favorite uh, response most of the time. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. So let's talk about it. Yeah. But that, it's risky, but it's um, it's it's alive, you know. Um, that's the that's the payoff. Yeah, it's like if I if I dare to not try to be valuable to my clients and um, contribute value and solve things. If I dare not to do that, then um, that's you know magical things happen. But also the I, I feel energized at the end of the day of coaching. You know, it's it's like incredible as opposed to if i'm trying to solve problems even if it's very subtle even if intellectually i know don't work to help my clients solve their problems even though i'm subtly my my identity is attached to that by the end of the day i'm kind of like you know i'm ready for a break and i need to i'm, I'm, I'm drained in some way so um but, you hit on yeah. a very very important point so if, you know, money is important, I don't disagree with you. But if a coach is going to measure in terms of time that the coach spends with a team, systemic doesn't work. I have sort of broadly given people eight hours the time to work with. Sometimes they've taken 14 hours at a stretch. We break for dinner and come back again and meet. And people are sufficiently engrossed and enthused to be able to do it. I'm happy to do it without charging them anything more. So you, you, that, that, that's, it's a completely different mindset. Yes, money is important, but there are some things more important than money. I, I, I really would like to make sure that the client gets what the client has asked for. And if I'm not able to do it in eight hours, if I have to do it in 14 hours, so be it. Mm. Uh, I, I think that some of those kind of, uh, things we need to be more comfortable. So, yeah, so I, I think for those who, fortunately, we are suddenly finding a lot of people in our community who are getting more and more interested in this whole systemic approach, partly because mm -hmm. they see the spirituality connect between that, and they also see that they are able to add far more definitive value to an organization and to the individuals than just by working with individuals, which is fine. I'm, I'm not saying uh, anything wrong with it, but if you really want to make a much larger change, I think you need to do both. You need to do the yeah. systemic work, which is a combination of both the teamwork as well as individual work. Yeah, thanks. Um... I, I just have a last question for you. Uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation, Ram. Really appreciate it. Have you got? Have we got another five minutes? Can I ask you? I, I have. I have as much time as you want. All right, great. I'd love to ask you, like, are there any um, 
And if, is there anything inspiring you right now that you would point us towards? You know, I was like, that's something I really, I'm, you know, it gets me in trouble sometimes. I'm always looking around, but yeah, are there any writers or could be within the field of coaching or without, you know, from the outside that uh, you would say, oh, I'm, I'm enjoying this right now. This is inspiring me. I mean, you mentioned the TED video, but... Yeah, uh, well, look, um, for whatever reason, from the time that I really came across Carl Rogers, he has been my inspiration. In fact, every single learner who comes to us, we tell them, please take his book on becoming a person as a starting point. Watch the videos. There are three videos of what's called uh, three of them, Albert Ellis, Carl Rogers, and Fritz Pearls, uh, each a legend, coaching one woman, Gloria, watch these and come back what you say, what you feel. And we do it two or three times during the session and how their opinions shift. To me, um, I would still go with, many people have criticized unconditional positive regard of, oh, how can you be that? Uh, I think Carl Rogers is not a fool. He also said congruence, which is authenticity, and therefore how do you balance the two with empathy is really what he was talking about. Another stream which has influenced me consistently is Kurt Lewin and the National Training Laboratory, NTL, their philosophy. And as it so happens, many of them are disciples of Kurt Lewin from MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. There's Edgar Schein. He, last year, we had a conference where he featured amazing. I read many of his books, and each time, very, very simple, humble inquiry that he talks about. It's such a beautiful book, and he talks about process consulting in a coaching manner. And Peter Senge, everybody knows him. And more recently, a person who has very, very powerfully inspired me is Otto Sharma with Terry Yu. And in, for today's world, what we are doing, I think what uh, Sharma is doing with his Theory U labs is probably the best way. It, it is beautifully systemic because he is really bringing in a whole lot of people, asking them to work on collective projects. And of course, that kind of a size, it's not something that you can sort of monitor, supervise, but whatever structures they are creating within that are extraordinarily powerful. So these are some of the things that we keep telling our people to look at. I mean, it's not people who have written about 100 powerful questions or how to create awareness and how to be present. And a lot of this stuff, I think, is completely... Uh, I don't know, in my opinion, uh, irrelevant. And uh, a combination of these, and, and John Whitmore, I mean, uh, for me, he has been a tremendous inspiration. I had a good fortune to work for his uh, company. Uh, he invited me to join some years ago before he died. Um, and not many, I mean, everybody associates him with a grow model, uh, but there's so much of work that he has done in transpersonal coaching, he and Timothy Galway. And I was trained by Timothy Galway um, as one of his facilitators at one point in time. The 
they are they are legends. They are truly great. Um, so these are some other people, and uh, but they also meet fresh off the boat uh, learners who who come up with things. I wish I say, my God, where do they get that from? So I constantly keep learning from people I work with, uh, and I'm supposed to be the trainer. But very often at the end of the day, I should be paying them because that, that is where my inspiration comes from. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, great. Those are um, really great tips. And I don't know um, the NI, what was it, the uh, Kurt Lewin's work at all. So I'll check him out. Um, yeah. no, the NTL, National Training Laboratory, is the foundation of OD, Organizational Development. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's not a very big organization. And I think financially they are not doing powerfully well, but uh, it's got some amazing, amazing people. And I've been associated with them for about five years now, spent a couple of international sessions with them. Truly, truly wonderful people. Right, yeah. And I also wanna ask about where we can find out about Cocharia and, and the work you guys are doing. Just go to our website, kutaria.com. Magda yeah. is doing a phenomenally powerful job. Uh, she has made it into a completely uh, different space. So we are good there. Yeah. I think that's the best place to go to. Yeah. Well, Ram, uh, thanks again. You know, I, I really enjoyed our conversation today. I really appreciate the perspectives and the sincerity and authenticity you've brought to our conversation today. My pleasure, Joel. I think I went all over the place, so hopefully you might manage to make something out of it. But thanks a lot. It was wonderful talking to you. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a, a heads up again. If you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And... Just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time.